And then it hit me like a chrome locomotive. And I said, how about this? How about if we took some of that wine in those tanks over there that you have in bulk and run it through that chrome locomotive down there and you paid us what you owe us instead of money, you pay us in bottled wine. And, you know, we'll figure out a label and we'll figure out a marketing program and we'll figure out how to get it on the market. How hard could that be? (laughs) And, And how long could that take? And so that was the deal that started Barefoot Wine. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guests today are Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan, who are the founders of the world's largest wine brand, international keynote speakers, and New York Times bestselling authors of The Barefoot Spirit. How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand, and also The Entrepreneurial Culture, 23 Ways to Engage and Empower Your People. From humble beginnings in, the, in a laundry room of a rented farmhouse to the boardroom of the world's largest wine company, E&J Gallo, they learned valuable lessons crucial to any business. They now consult and train startups and Fortune 500s on brand building and company culture, their full bio is going to be set forth in the show notes. Definitely check it out. They have a new audio book, uh, barefootaudiobook.com. We're going to be having a couple of expert excerpts from the, you know, from the book in this podcast. Um, but it's a very interesting thing that I want to talk to them about because they presented it in a theatrical format with Hollywood actors playing the parts and the original music score, sound effects, and more. So you'll hear some of that. Um, and I'm so excited to have Bonnie and uh, and Michael on the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Corey. We are delighted to be here. Yes, thanks, Corey. Well, I am I am so excited about uh, hearing about you know. So obviously, we're going to talk about deals, but just hearing about uh, the your entrepreneurial journey because you built such an iconic uh, company and brand. And we've been fortunate enough on the podcast to have uh, a couple other people who've done that in other areas, like Brian Smith, uh, who was on episode eight, who built UGGs, you know, the original UGG brand. Uh, which is an amazing, you know, brand story as well. Uh, David Bach, who uh, has built an amazing brand in the uh, financial services space uh, with uh, the Smart Women Finish Rich, Smart Couples Finish Rich, and Millionaire uh, Automatic Millionaire, and his latest one, The Latte Factor. And then, uh, you know, Damon Gersh is ex. Uh, you know, he's not as well known, but he's built a huge brand in the um, disaster recovery space, and his episode was super popular. So David Bach was episode 14, Damien Gersh was episode 25, and now we have uh, another get, you know, set of guests who built a really iconic brand. Um, so before we get to um, uh, that brand building and hearing about your entrepreneurial journey, I want to take you both back to when you were little kids growing up. And what did you want to be when you were little kids? Because my guess is uh, building the number one you know, wine brand in the world was probably not it when you were 8 or 10 or 12, but maybe I'm wrong. Tell me. Well, that's really a good question, Corey. And um, being female, when I grew up, if you wanted to be in the medical field, you were a nurse. You were never a doctor. Or if you wanted to be in the 
educational field. You were a teacher. You were never really a professor. Um, so I guess being a woman growing up in the 1950s, my uh, options seemed to be limited, although my mother told me I really wasn't limited. So that kind of helped me expand my thoughts. But what I realized was what I really wanted to do was to take care of all the details uh, for someone who was running an organization. I thought I would be the top secretary and manage uh, an executor who had a big corporation, and I would take care of all the details for him. So that's what I thought I would be doing. I love it. Michael? Well, uh, you know, growing up as a male in the 1950s, it was uh, being a jet fighter pilot, I think. <laughs> you know, I wanted whatever I did, I wanted to do it at Mach 3. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. And um, one other background question I always ask is, uh, what, was, uh, what was each of your first business? However you define that. Could have been as a little kid, could have been later. Um, what was your first business? Was it Naked Wives or was it something before? No, my first business was actually helping other businesses. So I had temporary uh, jobs at temp agencies in San Francisco when I first got to San Francisco. And I shortly after that, I started working with business owners myself, helping them organize their businesses and, and take care of their books and their inventory and all fun stuff like that. So I, I learned about my business uh, uh, management that way. And uh, I was what they called a courtesy clerk, also known as a bag boy. Uh, I worked for a big supermarket chain at the time, and uh, my job was to catch the items as they came through the cash register and put them into bags and help the customers to their car with the bags of groceries. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It brings me back because I actually worked in the supermarket myself as a teenager, and they, they actually had, I don't know if they still do this, but they actually had an overnight shift where you would restock everything. And they would literally lock you in the store. I mean, obviously, there was an emergency exit, but they would lock you in the store because they didn't uh, you know, want you to take <laughs> food out, whatever. But the rule was you could eat anything you wanted. And I don't think they anticipated us bringing in hibachis to cook up steaks, but, uh, <laughs> but, but we did. So uh, <laughs> I love it. All right. So, so give, us, um, uh, give us a little um, just you know, high-level background on this uh, amazing brand that you built and then also what you guys are doing now, uh, you know, post, uh, post that experience. Well, Corey, the beginning of our wine industry uh, education <laughs> was when we started learning about what it took to uh, sell this brand. And we didn't decide to go into the wine industry. What we really did is we took advantage of an opportunity that was presented to us that we really couldn't pass up. My client was owed 300000 for grapes that he wasn't getting paid for. So I sent Michael off to collect that. <laughs> so here, here was quite a deal for him if he could pull it off was to collect $300,000. But the winery had just declared bankruptcy and there wasn't any money. So Michael had to be pretty clever once he got there and figured out that there wasn't any money to find. So I get there, and the day I get there, they had declared bankruptcy. And this was a big winery, you know, and they were owed, uh, they owed our client about $300,000. 
And so I know your show's about deals, so you'll appreciate this. <laughs> when I got there, I thought, you know, do I really want to go through with this meeting? You know, I, I, you know, I don't have uh, a contract. My client didn't have a contract. He sold them grapes for three years on a handshake. Uh, and I looked out the window while I was talking to the board of directors, who are all the secured uh, debtors at the time, and I saw this uh, row of tanks. And I said, well, what do you got in those tanks? You know, just to make small talk. And they said, well, we've got uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Sauvignon Blanc wine in bulk in those tanks. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And then I looked out the other window because I was thinking to myself, that's the same two varietals that you owe my client for grapes you haven't paid him for in three years, Bonnie's client. So I look out the other window and I'm looking into what, what appears to be a giant handball court and in the middle of it is this big gleaming chrome machine that looks like some kind of a locomotive it's got tracks going in and tracks going out and it's it's huge and i said uh, well guys i said what's what's with the what's with the uh, giant locomotive in the handball court they said well that's that's not a handball court that's a clean room that's a bottling room and that's that's not a locomotive it's a, it's a bottling line mm. i said you're kidding i said does it work and they said yeah it works and I, and then it hit me like a chrome locomotive. And I said, how about this? How about if we took some of that wine in those tanks over there that you have in bulk and run it through that chrome locomotive down there and you paid us what you owe us instead of money, you pay us in bottled wine. And, you know, we'll figure out a label and we'll figure out a marketing program and we'll figure out how to get it on the market. How hard could that be? <laughs> and, and, and how long could that take? And so that was the deal that started Barefoot Wine, was trading debt, really, you know, for assets and in a trade and getting started with that. But, of course, now we had to learn everything there was to know about, you know, the legality of it and, uh, you know, the marketing of it and, and everything uh, you know how it goes, Corey. You got to research what you're going to do before you do it. Well, we researched the heck out of it, and we were outsiders. Uh, and Bunny, you know why? Why was that such a great idea to be an outsider? Well, we were able to get a fresh idea about the wine industry. Of course, every, anybody that's been in an industry for a while will just follow what everyone else is doing. Seems to work this way, but we didn't know what was working, so we went out and we asked a lot of questions. And we didn't have any money, so we couldn't throw money at any of the problems we had. We had to be clever. We had to figure out how to work with people in a way that would benefit us and get our label known without paid advertising. And we were able to do that. So that was that was really a challenge. So, so let's talk about, and this will lead us into uh, one of the clips that that I love to play from your uh, theatrical audio book. Um, so one of the basic things that any new business like that has to do, and you started to, alluding to it before you start marketing, is to put together, you know, pick a name, put together a logo, right? So tell us that story a little bit, lead it into this clip that we'll play. Well, um, you know, we went out and we asked everybody uh, what we should do. You know, what should the label look like? What should the package look like? And we, we asked everybody, we say, make friends with people in low places. You know, these are, these are people who are clerks, people with dirt under their fingernails who are driving forklifts. You know, they're, they're working in the bowels of the industry. And so one of them said, you know, and this was a buyer for a major chain store. He says, look, he says, uh, make the name the same as the logo. Uh, put it in plain English and make sure she can see it from three feet away. 
Now, I know that sounds like simple directions, but that was pretty much unheard of. Uh, and it was directly from the people in the industry. And so with that, you know, uh, we we thought about it and we thought, well, there used to be a label called Barefoot a long time ago owned by a friend of ours named Barefoot Bynum, and it's been defunct for 12 years. But maybe we can take a look at that and, you know, see if that works. And uh, the name was the same as the logo. It was in plain English. Uh, and so one night really late, uh, we got home uh, from visiting friends. I wanted to go to bed. Bonnie all of a sudden got this flash of insight and and threw me up on the chalkboard. And yeah, let, and so let's cut into that clip because uh, the, the clip from the audiobook tells a great story on that right here. She needed to make it solid. She needed Michael to draw it. And she needed this to happen fast. That's why she was almost vibrating to get it out and why she hustled a half-asleep Michael to the little green chalkboard in the kitchen. I know what the label looks like. This is going to be a big success. I could see it stacked in supermarkets. This is going to sell a lot of wine. Michael picked up the chalk and started to draw. Quick, quick, draw a foot. What kind of foot? A nice foot. Just draw it. Michael sketched a slim right foot along the bottom of the chalkboard. No, 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 stand it up. He erased it and drew one with the heel at the bottom and the toes straight up. Close, tilt it to the right. He erased and drew again. No, no, more tilt. Just a little. Make it look like there's some motion. It's like someone is stepping up. Bonnie's voice was getting louder. She was talking faster, feeling like this was even more urgent. Her panic was growing. They could not lose this idea. Is that it? By now, the chalkboard had a layer of white dust from all the erased chalk. Really close. The foot should look like an exclamation point, an italicized exclamation point. And give it a little more arch. It got more tilt. It got more arch. How's that? Now write barefoot. Michael put down barefoot next to the angled drawing. Closer. Move it closer. Put the T all the way inside the arch. Bonnie stopped bouncing and looked at it. The board was nearly white. The air was filled with chalk dust. They stood silently, surrounded by their intensity. Both were taking big breaths. Bonnie's fear had dissipated. They looked at a slim right foot pointing up at a two o'clock angle, acting as an exclamation point for the barefoot written into the arch. They both thought it was good, but they had no idea that in not much more than a decade, it would become an iconic national label. <sighs> there, that's what the label looks like. That's gonna sell a lot of wine. So guys, so I love that that story because I mean, especially well. First of all, what what year was that 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 you know you you kicked that off and 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 came up with that logo? That was in nineteen eighty five. Okay, so for our younger listeners uh, who think why didn't uh-huh. why didn't they go on one of the many sites where you can get you know crowdsource uh, a logo from people all around the world now uh, you know for for very little money. That didn't exist back then, folks. <laughs> you know, that was not an option. You either paid a branding firm, you know, a significant amount of money or you figured it out on your own. And obviously you guys didn't have money back then to pay a branding firm, right? That's right. We didn't have any money, but we did find a way to do some crowdsourcing. So let, talk about we that. We went to a lot of tastings. Okay. We went to a lot of benefits and wine events. And, and we talked to um, all the people that were tasting our wines and asked them what they thought of the label or the flavor or where they shopped or what they were looking for. So 
in that sense, we did one-on-one crowdsourcing. I got it. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was it was a lot less less efficient those days, but certainly much more personal, uh, you know, uh, because you were actually talking to people as opposed to getting feedback online, right? Right. So great. So so you so you launch this uh, you launch this brand. You come up with the you know with the logo, which has since become you know iconic, obviously. But at the time, you know who knew? And and uh, t- you know t- talk to us next. I mean, I, there there is another clip you'll tell us. Uh, you know, uh, just lead into the story. But I love. Well, first of all, let me ask this because this next clip that I want us to to listen to it uh, in a little while here. You have um, uh, Ed Asner uh, playing the buyer. Uh, uh, is that? Um, did you just hire uh, actors to to do this? Talk to me about this whole concept of the theatrical um, audio book. Uh, you know, or did you have some relationship? You know, with him previously? Was he a uh, you know a wine guy? Uh, to tell me about that. Yeah, we became um, we became familiar with a group in Hollywood, and they had a troupe that they were working with professional actors. And uh, they had producers, they had a, uh, an engineer for music and recording. And we have a friend, Ryan Boland, uh, and he's a communications expert. He said that the best way to get your message across was through audio, tell stories. And um, that he thought that our book, The Barefoot Spirit, which had already gotten a New York Times bestseller award, we were really happy with that, should be turned into an audio book. So it's really like theater. It, it's a 3D audio. It's a, a real experiment in teaching business in a way that's quite different and very entertaining. So we, we went out and we listened to audio books and we listened to business audio books and they were all narrations. Maybe they had a Hollywood actor narrating it, but, you know, God help you if you didn't like the sound of the narrator's voice because you were stuck with it for seven hours. And so we said, you know, this narration thing seems to be, you know, single dimensional. Why don't we do what Ryan says and hire this Hollywood acting troupe to go out and actually act out the parts like a 1945 radio theater, you know, before television and uh, create the theater of the mind and let people imagine the scenes and, you know, bring in sound effects and music and all that. So in this scene, and this is the mistake that most entrepreneurs make, and we made this mistake. You fall in love with your product, right? We created the cute logo. Uh, you know, we, we did everything that everybody told us to do uh, in the industry. And so, you know, we go ahead and we think, here you go. This is everything you asked for, you know, and, and you can see what happens. Yeah. So, uh, listeners, I, I I love this clip. Uh, I mean, I think actually the casting, uh, you know, Ed Asner is uh, perfect for if you know anything about buyers in the wine business and, you know, people who have been in the trenches for all this time and, uh, and and how they might act with a new, you know, a new brand coming in. I think this captures it really amazingly. So let's roll the clip. Yeah. Who do I am? What do you want? Michael put a bottle of Barefoot Cabernet and one of the Sauvignon Blanc on Brown's desk. We bottled the wine and want you to see it. Brown picked up the bottle of red and looked it up and down. Then he did the same with the white. This is what you asked for. There aren't any leaps or hills or rivers. It's a label she can read from four feet away. The logo is the same as the name. It's in plain English and easy to pronounce. It's a name she'll remember and a logo she won't forget. Michael was proud of what they'd done in the way of a student with a good report card. 
Barefoot was unique, interesting, and fit everything that Brown and the others said would sell. The wine, he knew, was terrific. The label was friendly and fun. What's not to love, he thought. Brown kept looking at the bottles. He didn't say anything. The silence was uncomfortable, but Michael sat quietly. Brown looked at the bottles again, but said nothing. Michael figured it was just Don Brown being Don Brown. Make everyone sweat. So, Don, how many truckloads do you want? Brown put the bottle down at his desk and looked at Michael like he was from Mars. Michael couldn't have gotten a worse look from Brown if he had clucked. Are you crazy? I can't buy this. Nobody knows this brand. Nobody's ever seen or heard of Barefoot. It's everything you asked for. Yeah? So what? That doesn't matter. No one's going to buy something they never heard of. You got to advertise it. If you're willing to spend $1 million on TV ads, I'll buy from you. We don't have that kind of advertising budget. In truth, they had no advertising budget. There wasn't $100 for ads. Then you gotta go make a name for yourself. You gotta go sell it to every mom and pop store in every corner till everyone knows what Barefoot is. Michael felt like he just got hit by a brick. That'll take years. Well, Hulan, you better get started. Yeah, so so, so let, let, let's let's expand on what happened there a little bit, right? Uh, you know, in terms of your your entrepreneurial journey, um, you know, you had gotten some advice. You 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 thought you had, uh, you know, you had followed it, and you know, maybe thought uh, at least the impression I got from the you know, clip was, oh, great, we're on our way. You know, now we're ready to launch, and and then you got some hard feedback there. So uh, what happened next in the journey when he told you to, you know? Uh, go out to a million little shops and, uh, you know, and, and it'll take years. Uh, uh, tell us what happened in reality. Well, you know, naturally, we were completely uh, amazed and depressed and uh, didn't know what the heck to do. Because here, this was our plan A. We thought, well, we'll build this, we'll, we'll put all the wine in, the, in bottles and and put this label on it. We'll sell it to the supermarket. They'll sell it. We'll have our money. We'll pay off the guy that Bonnie's working for, and we'll be down the road. And at this point, we realize that it's going to be a much longer road than we thought. <laughs> by you know, far. yeah, by right. far. And so uh, we start going into these little mama papas and independent stores. And, you know, they've got the same problem that everybody else does. They say, well, are you going to advertise this brand? You know, are you going to put a million dollars into advertising? Because if it doesn't sell, you know, within 90 days, we're going to discontinue it. And that would have been the end of Barefoot, except that we get a telephone call from out of the blue from a, from a neighborhood uh, improvement organization in San Francisco, actually in Chinatown, and they want to build a kids after school park. So the guy's calling us up and he's looking for about $50,000 in donation <laughs> to build this park. He thinks we're rich <laughs> and, and he wants money for slides and swings and jungle gyms and sandboxes. And we say, you know what? First, we asked him if he has the right number, but then we feel sorry for the guy and we say, listen, you know, we think your cause is a great cause. Why don't we just give you some wine and maybe to loosen up some people at your fundraiser, they'll write you a bigger check, or maybe you can auction some of it off and you can use it to buy a slide or a swing. Uh, well, he wasn't real happy with that because he was looking for money. And uh, time went by and we got the report 
from sales in San Francisco, which was our first city. And here in Chinatown, the sales are through the roof and we can't figure out why. We're trying to figure out why are the sales so high and they're not moving very well in the other stores. And um, we say, I wonder if it was that fundraiser we donated to. I wonder if there was a relationship between that free wine we gave them and the fact that they, the members of that organization went out and saw it for sale in the stores that were near where their fundraiser right. was. And so we thought, well, we'll try that in another neighborhood. We tried another neighborhood. It works. We tried in another neighborhood. It works. We tried in neighborhood after neighborhood all across the United States. And instead of commercial advertising, we do what we called at the time worthy cause marketing, which was to support nonprofits. So that's how we get the word out about Barefoot. And that's what really got us started in the business. Yeah, no, it's a, there's a number of things that are really interesting to, to me there in terms of the entrepreneurial journey and also, you know, the timing of it as well. And they are, you know, they include the, you know, the following uh, one, um, you know, we, we often, I mean, you know, in, in the, in, in the funded uh, company world, in the VC world, they call it pivot. Now they have a name for it, right. You know, you pivot. And my joke when I do talk sometimes is what pivot means is that you failed at what you said you were going to do and you got to figure out a better way. It's a nice way to say that. And you know, that, I mean, so you had a pivot right here, you know, you thought it was going to go one way and you went a different way. But the other thing is, you know, nowadays, I mean, cause marketing, uh, socially conscious businesses, you know, all of that stuff is so, you know, much more prevalent. But back then, uh, you know, that was that was not something. So, you know, you were pioneers in, you know, in that as well. And then obviously, you know, you obviously had a great product because people wouldn't have, uh, you know, had it if they didn't like the wine when they tried it at these fundraisers. But just because you have a great product doesn't mean anybody finds out about it. You found a great way to to get the word out there. Yes, yes, that's absolutely true. We really had to bring in the buyers, not only for the chain store, as that buyer told us, but for even the small mom and pops. If you're not bringing in the customers to buy the product and make the product good enough that they're going to go back in and buy it again, then we weren't going to succeed. So that turned out to be plan B, which ended up being a better plan than what we thought we were going to do in the first place. Well, that's right. And, and the, you know, that's the other great thing that I always say is great entrepreneurs listen to the market. You know, you don't get, I mean, you, you, uh, Michael said earlier about, you know, the lesson not falling in love with your product or marketing or whatever. And, you know, a corollary to that is, uh, you know, smart entrepreneurs evolve and listen to the market, what the market's telling them. Yep. Absolutely. In fact, uh, we got lots of different pivots. We were we we actually had the spins there for a while. We were pivoting so much. <laughs> I love that. I love that. All right. So 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 now take us through um, the you know the scaling of the of the company. Were there any uh, you know what what are the types of deals? I mean, obviously there are fundamental deals in the wine industry with distributors uh, and things like that. But any other deals you did, and then eventually, obviously, you you know you you sold you sold the company, right? Oh yeah. Well, I I would say that one of the pivotal deals. Uh, that we made was there was there was a crazy uh, group of people down in Southern California who uh, had a store and uh, boy they had fishnets on the wall and uh, you know they called the head clerk a captain and everybody else was first mates and so forth. They wore and, Hawaiian shirts. They wore Hawaiian <laughs> shirts and it was like no other store. And they had stuff from you know Russia and Europe and China uh, and stuff you never saw. And, and it's it started out there uh, 
in uh, in in the Los Angeles area, uh, Pasadena, and they had two stores or three stores when we walked in the door and we said, look, uh, you guys are crazy. Uh, we're crazy. Uh, maybe we can work together. You know, you, you guys, you got nets and, and uh, you know, stuff from all over the world and, and you have a whole different approach to retail. Uh, we do too. We're, we're trying to make the wine business fun and approachable and it's rather, you know, stuffy and, uh, and uh, isolationist. And uh, so what do you say? And so they started buying wine from us and uh, they, they kept saying, you know, how can we get this wine cheaper? And we said, well, you have to buy bigger, you know, larger amounts. And so finally they were buying huge amounts and they were expanding their stores and their stores expanded all over California and then all over the West and then all over the United States. They were called Trader Joe's. <laughs> well, that's amazing. I, I, I didn't, I didn't know that part of the story and uh, I, I love it. So you, uh, yeah, so you picked the good horse there and, uh, and grew with them. That's that's the key. I think one of the things that you've got to do in business is you have to identify who your strategic allies are. You know, who who gets rich if you get rich should be the question on everybody's brain when they wake up in the morning. You know what, Michael? You, I mean, that statement is, is is preaching something that I say all the time. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm often amazed at how, um, you know, strategic partnerships, strategic alliances uh, are underutilized, I think, in a lot of businesses. And I'll often ask people simple questions like, you know, who are your key suppliers or, you know, customers or who, who is selling? This is, a, this is a great one. You know, somebody's having trouble gr- growing their organic sales. And I'll, I'll ask them, you know, who, who else is selling to that clientele? Can you cut a deal with them? And, you know, it's amazing how often uh, people haven't thought about that kind of strategic alliance and how much of a change maker it can be for their business. Absolutely. I think another way that we really built a strategic alliance was with our own salespeople and with our entire team. But our salespeople particularly was in the way that they were paid. And we shared in the funds that we got as profits with our salespeople and our office staff. And that created a situation where they all had to work together towards the same goals because that's how uh, they were paid. That was a portion of their, their compensation. So it took a long time to figure out you know, how to best work with them all. And so our plan changed on an annual basis, but basically everyone shared in uh, profits and in growth and um, in number of cases sold. So that seemed to uh, to be a little different than what a lot of companies were doing, which if they're just paying the salesman um, a straight salary, then they don't have an incentive to sell more to expand their territory. Yeah, I love that. And aligning incentives is is such a key thing to figure out in a business. And I do look at that as a deal. And uh, and companies um, often make assumptions. I mean, I love the fact that you talked about like tweaking it and figuring it out over time because um, you know we, we do uh, you know on my law firm side we, we you know we do a number of these what we call attraction and retention vehicles for company companies whether they're profit sharing plans or phantom equity plans or profits, interests, or, you know, you name it. Uh, And, you know, one of the things I always talk to people about is, listen, don't make assumptions about what your people want. You got to really figure out what makes them tick. And I've seen, uh, you know, I remember um, I've had this happen a number of times, but somewhere recently a client came to me and said they wanted to give equity to to the salesperson. And I said, you know, to have them uh, be tied in and have a vested interest. And in concept, that makes sense. But I said, really sit down with that person and figure out whether, you know, they care about that. Because in my experience, 
a lot of salespeople, and this is not universally true, but a lot of salespeople, they're interested in making more money now, not necessarily, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, having something on the back end. And it turned out that was the case with this person. So in addition to, you know, uh, his compensation plan, we put in a a profit sharing, which got him more money every year and did not give away equity, which is, you know, a whole, I won't get into the details of what's involved in that. And, you know, uh, you got to make sure you match those programs to what really incentivizes your key people. Exactly. And if people are making money dependent on sales growth and profitability, the winners, the people that are really contributing to that really can't afford to to leave. And if you're not contributing to that, well, you really can't afford to stay. So that was a good way of weeding themselves out just by giving them those those kind of goals to uh, to achieve. That's great. So so let's talk about, so, uh, you know, uh, where did you guys take the company to? And then wh- what was involved in the, in the decision to sell at some point? Well, you know, when we were building the company, uh, it, it became clear that uh, it was the cost of sales and not the cost of goods that was the limiting factor in growth. And, and today we have clients and we warn them about the cost of sales. And what that really means is, is how do you uh, afford to pay to service what you've sold? And a lot of people don't realize that, you know, that buyer's not going to buy from you unless you take them to lunch every quarter. Or, you know, that clerk that you're relying on is not going to reorder unless you give him a baseball hat for his favorite team. And it goes on and on and on. And and then you realize that there's certain places uh, in the market where you have to have somebody there just to police what you're doing so they don't tell you that things are going one way when they're really going the other way. So you start talking about accountability and customer service. And these are the cost of sales. They're not the cost of goods. So for Barefoot, as we grew and we became large, we, we, were, we were just under about 600,000 cases a year. We were in all 50 states. We were in 28 foreign countries. And we were in all of the military bases around the world. Um, and we were going, well, what's the next step? Well, the next step for us was to spend a lot more money in uh, in maintaining what we had built. So that's when we started to say, you know, we really need to look around for somebody who's going to take this brand to the next level, who is serious about what we know is the linchpin. And that is the cost of sales, otherwise known as merchandising, also known as customer service or customer support. And so we found that E&J Gallo was that company. For one thing, they were not a, they were not a publicly traded company. So if they had a five-year plan, they would execute it. Right. Um, they wouldn't come up with a new five-year plan every 90 days right, to sell right. stock. Right, to, to, to satisfy quarterly, uh, you know, reports to public shareholders. Exactly. Love it. Let me let me tell you uh, before I want to continue with that, but I realized that I, I wanted to check something. So at, at, prior to selling, uh, did you still own, had you raised any capital, brought in investors, uh, had other owners, or did you did you all own it uh, uh, through the time you you sold it? We had the original three hundred thousand. Yep. Okay, which was our debt to uh, the grower, and we took that over. And then we worked with our accounts payable list and our accounts receivable list. And to be funded, 
we, for instance, we've got buyers like Trader Joe's. They wanted to buy more. We wanted to sell them more. So we got better terms, better conditions. They pick up in their own trucks as, as such. And by buying more, they, Trader Joe's and other companies, would be inclined to sell more. So we would give them a good price to get them to buy a larger quantity. Then they would have sales on it and they'd be moving more. So this gave us cash in our pockets to pay our bills by uh, asking for them to pay COD. And we worked with our suppliers in the same way. Um, we had uh, good news and bad news. We got a new chain store in Florida and they wanted to carry our product in 600 stores. Well, that sounds like great news unless you realize that you don't have the money to pay for the supplies to give them those products for 600 stores. So we went to our supplier and we told them our dilemma. Meanwhile, before this, we'd been building a relationship with them by having quarterly meetings. We'd tell them our goals, our opportunities, and our challenges. So when we told them this story, that we had a great opportunity to grow, and of course, we needed more supplies from them in order to do so, they realized that they had to extend our credit terms in order for us to grow. So. Uh, without charging us interest, they extended our credit terms, gave us all the supplies up front that we needed because of the relationship we built. And once again, that enabled us to grow without having to borrow money. Wow. So fueling deals podcast listeners, this is like, this is really key. I want to emphasize a couple of things here. So, and, um, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. So what it sounds like to me is you did not raise venture capital or private equity money, correct? That's okay. true. You didn't take on any major um, uh, 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 debt or financing for even for purchase orders uh, uh, out, uh, outside of basically extending terms with your, you know, with your with your uh, customers and with your suppliers. Right. Right. Well, we did work with the bank, yep. get a line of credit, which is where the bank says, I'll give you 75 percent of the value of your accounts receivable right now here in cash. Okay, good. So you factored the accounts receivable, you know, some extent with the bank, but you know, you know, your main way, and this is, you know, I love this because it's creative and I've seen other people do it. And, 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 uh, and, and I think one of the things that you said, Bonnie, is really key. It's not like you can walk into somebody you have no relationship with and say, even if they've been supplying you and say, hey, we want you to extend your terms out and basically give us a no interest loan. But what you guys did had built had built a relationship, not only because of the business, but because of these quarterly lunches and, and whatever. So there was a trust factor there, right? You had basically, you know, uh, a trusted partner who gave you interest-free financing, essentially. Yes, it was the trust factor, Corey, and that is what really saved us. That's what allowed us to grow, is the relationships that we built on a one-to-one -one basis. We actually give a talk called How Soft Skills Earn Hard Cash, <laughs> and it deals with this entire issue here of how you can finance your business by working with your suppliers, working with your customers, working with your employees the three major relationships that you have in business. I, I love that. And, and I, and I want to get to uh, talk about a little bit more of what you're doing now. But let's, let's finish this, this story with the sale to, uh, uh, to Gallo. Um, uh, obviously, you know, not asking you to disclose anything that's confidential, but can you, uh, whatever you can in, in terms of how that deal was structured, did they buy you at 100%? Did you have to stay on for a period of time? You know, what, was, uh, what did that, that, that exit deal look like? 
Well, first of all, we had to make them aware that we were out there and that we were growing and that we were taking up shelf space. And what we did was we arranged to be in the same distributorship that a number of their brands were in. So that distributorship that Gallo was going to be watching because their brands are there, they would see for themselves that we were growing. So as Michael says, you had to put your your peanut, which was our brand, in front of the elephant. (laughs) I love that. And uh, so they discovered us and uh, we managed to work with a very excellent uh, broker who'd also worked with them previously, which was another key reason why we were able to get in and talk to them at that level was because we worked with someone who'd already sold them a brand and had a successful relationship with them. Yeah, And selling a business uh, uh, really for us was as much, if not more, of an education than actually building the business. Um, The the sales process, I mean, for one thing, you want to start thinking about acquisition on day one, even if you say, I'll never sell my business. You really do. You want to think about what does your acquirer's due diligence look like and how can I organize my own files, my own records in such a way that it will make it easy for them to transact this deal as fast as possible. Because remember, the longer the deal takes, the less money the seller makes. And the reason is, is because the word gets out. Once the word gets out, the buyers say, well, maybe we'll wait until we see what the new buyer's going to charge, or maybe we'll see what the quality or customer service like when the new buyer comes on. Well, why do they know about the new buyer in the first place, you see? So things have got to be kept secret. They've got to happen fast. You have to do the acquirer's due diligence for the acquirer and be ready to sell from day one. Think about what you'd want to see if you bought a business and make a list of those things and then organize your files that way. You'd be surprised. And, and Michael, you, you really talk, speak in my language there because, uh, you know, we do a lot of M&A, a lot of deals, and we that's how we prep our clients. And, and um, you know, that concept of doing the due diligence for them. I mean, I, I remember, you know, we did a big deal in the stock photography comp- uh, industry uh, where Jupiter Media bought a client of ours. And I remember uh, uh, that... Um, I mean, we've done this many, many times, but I just remember this one in particular because, you know, we had, we had a, uh, they came in to do their due diligence and we had a huge conference room table with all of the documents they'd want to see la- uh, laid out, indexed. Um, we had already looked at the assignability provisions in the agreement, which is really something the buyer usually do, you know, did and pointed them to the provisions and told them, you know, where everything was. We made sure that all the clients had their contracts. And the reason we did that is everything you just said. Plus, you know, this is what I always say to clients. The people who are doing the deal, you know, there's somebody who's made a decision on the buyer side to do the deal. The team that's doing the deal, however, a big thing that they're worried about is that they don't, is that the deal ends up going bad and it's something they missed. Uh, you know, that they're yep. going to lose their job, they're going to be in trouble, whatever. And, and so whether it's the financial people, the legal people, the business people, the various due diligence they're doing. And what happens is if you don't have your ducks in a row, there may be nothing there, right? But if they feel there's a little smoke, they're worried about what fires there. And you can derail a deal when really there's nothing wrong if you don't seem like you have your act together because they're worried about what they don't know. So your advice, Michael, on that is is brilliant. I agree with it. Yeah. Yes, it's really all about presentation. You present all the information confidently. It makes them believe, which more often than not is true, that you're company is organized so you can put your hands on anything quickly 
And uh, any organized company is much better to be purchasing than a company that's all disorganized. So you really want to give them a good presentation and be ready for your buyer uh, when you're presenting your documents. Exactly. And, and another, another part of that negotiation is, you know, the, the, the iron hand and the velvet glove because you're presenting yourself so well, you've got a package for their personnel people. You got a package for their legal people. You got a package for their engineering people. A package for the sales, the marketing. Everybody's got their package, right? And it has everything that they need to know about your company. It's got all all of the disclaimers, everything. Guess what? When they look at that, they say, "You know what? These guys could go to our competition with this. These guys are organized." They've given us a certain number of days to take a look at this. They've given us the right of first refusal. But you know what? They can take this show on the road. And that's the message that you want to send is that you are dressed for success and that there's more than one dancer in the room. I love it. So so was um, so talk to me a little bit. One last thing on that deal. So was that a typical uh, deal where they they, they bought you out? You guys uh, uh, needed to stay on for a period of time uh, to help. Well, they asked us, they, they bought us out. Uh, but then after they bought us out, they said, you know, uh, we would really like it if you uh, and Bonnie came to work for us as a brand consultants uh, and work for us for at least a year just to make sure that the brand, that the barefoot spirit stays alive in our big company. And they used the term the barefoot spirit. And we liked it so much. That's the name of our book, The Barefoot Spirit, because what they were talking about is the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, the way business was conducted, uh, you know, relying on resourcefulness and, uh, you know, team building and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that can get lost in a big company where you have big divisions of labor, you know, and infighting and all that. So we went to work for them and uh, we showed them, you know, some of the reasons why we did things a certain way. And what's amazing is they they bought it and they ran with it. And today, Barefoot is the world's largest wine brand. That's amazing. That's great. So now let's let's talk about. So now you know you you do the book and um, you know you you now have another business where you're doing speaking and consulting and that kind of stuff. And a lot of uh, what you do, you've learned from the, the lessons of your journey uh, with uh, uh, you know in the wine business and and and, and building uh, you know the, the company, etc. So tell us uh, more about what you're doing now and uh, how you help companies. Well, what we're really excited about is how well the audiobook turned out. Uh, it just really brought it to life. Anyone who has listened to the audiobook and read our book both uh, in paperback form, they just say that it helped them remember the stories and the lessons better. And it was really exciting to be listening to. So we were so happy with how our book turned out that we're making our services of creating an audiobook available to other people. Everybody's got a story to tell. Um, maybe it's a story of how your company was started, like our story is, and what our philosophies were, and how we treated customers, and this kind of thing. So that's great for training people on your staff, if you're a business owner, and, and onboarding people, new members, and really helping them all understand how they can work together as a team by understanding the founder's goals. So we'd like to make the service available 
to companies uh, that want to tell their story about their founders, or even if it's a family legacy, somebody wants to leave more than just pictures, but a real audio, something that their family members can listen to in many years to come. So uh, we're excited. We've got the production company, we've got the actors, we've got the know-how, and we've also got a successful book, audio book that we've done ourselves that people can listen to as an example. What can really happen when you've got a good team together? Oh, I love that. That's great. So, um, so if, uh, if people um, uh, want to find out more about that, uh, what's the best place for them to go? Oh, they should go to www.barefootaudiobook.com. That's what we're talking about. It's like the Barefoot Wine brand, and it's an audiobook. It's barefootaudiobook.com. And when they get there, they can listen to some of the clips that we've heard today and more clips from the book. And uh, I think that they'll find that it's a, a new and exciting way to uh, listen to a story. It puts you right in the action. You know, you hear the sound effects, man. There's the thunder and lightning, you know, there's uh, shopping carts banging together, uh, people having arguments in offices. So, you know, it's it's a wonderful way to listen and you can listen to it on your own time. Uh, and, and it's episodic content. So you can listen to one episode on your way to work and the next day listen to another episode. I love that. And and uh, so listeners, if, if you happen to be driving or whatever, and you weren't able to get that URL, don't worry about it. It'll be posted in the show notes. You just, just, you know, pull up the show notes from the episode and you'll be able to click through uh, to it there. Um, so, you know, before we, uh, we conclude here, um, uh, and I, I am going to, uh, we're going to link up one of, uh, one more audio clip at the, uh, at the end of this. Um, there's a fun one, uh, uh, about um, a call that they got early on from a party uh, where a bunch of people were drinking uh, naked wines, and one of the what is it? One of the salespeople got uh, got a little nickname from that. Yeah, this is this is all about personalized attention. You know, you can have the best product in the world, but what it really comes down to is how do you treat your customers? You make them feel important. You know, these days, you know, we're living in a world where everybody's taking a number and waiting their turn and they're being processed and, you know, they're going through some script that somebody in the Philippines is reading to them. Uh, this is just exactly the opposite of that. Okay. So I'll tell you what, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to throw that little uh, scene in uh, now before I uh, ask my final question. And uh, so definitely enjoy this clip uh, here. If there was a barefooter in the area and state laws allowed it, Randy would send the barefooter to the house to make the delivery. Hi, I'm from Barefoot. I heard you got a bad cork. The people at the door would have their jaws hanging open. Here's another bottle. And here are a couple t-shirts. Have a nice evening. Oh, gee. Thanks. Some of the calls were so good, Randy would play them on the answering machine at Barefoot's office. My lovely wife and I are enjoying a nice glass of your cab. We're both barefoot. Not only that, we're both naked. Later... I'm going to drink some wine from her shoe. When he could, Randy called back quickly, though he generally steered clear of people drinking from their shoes. He picked up a message one Friday evening from a party in Chicago. The caller said they loved the wine and made everyone take their shoes off before they phoned. Randy called back. Hi, my name is Randy. I'm from Barefoot Wine. A salesman returning a phone call got turned into a superhero. It also got him the permanent nickname, The Barefoot Guy. I just called to say, I'm glad to hear you're having a good time. Thanks for drinking Barefoot. Hey, everyone, he said, 
Thanks for drinking barefoot. People at that Chicago party started cheering. Randy could hear the whoops and yays. Wow, we love you. That doesn't sound particularly groundbreaking in this current hyper-connected world when making personal connections is a mainstream business tactic, but it was new then, and it came from thinking the way any business needs to think. All right, great. So, so listen, I, I, I love it. And, you know, you described uh, this uh, theatrical audio book, and I think people, now that they've heard the clips, uh, will have the same impression I did, you know, about this sort of 40, 40s radio, you know, um, kind of uh, format. And, and that's the impression I got from it. And it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just a lot of fun. I really, I have not heard anything done like that. Um, so I think it's, uh, I think it's a great thing you've done. And I think uh, it's something, this idea to have, help other people do it, uh, I think is really fantastic as well. Well, thank you. We are really happy with it. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback from others that have listened to it as well. Okay, so my final question here on the podcast is always the the same. I, uh, my, you know, it's only my opening and, and closing questions are the same. Everything else we flow. Um, and so one of my highest ideals is uh, is authenticity. And to me, authenticity is not a conversation of external ethics or morals. It's uh, alignment with inner truth, alignment with, you know, what we're really here to do, who we are, that kind of stuff. And, um, I, I, you know, it's interesting having built an iconic brand like you guys did, um, you know, nowadays, especially, um, the idea of brands being authentic. I mean, it's, uh, you know, brands that are inauthentic get challenged all the time. I mean, with social media and everything that's happening now at a high level of social consciousness with younger people. So, um, you know, I, I think authenticity in brand, uh, and then also authenticity in business and life is super important. I'd love to get your thoughts on authenticity in business and brand. Well, you know, it's absolutely critical, especially these days. People know that they're voting with their dollars when they buy something. So they make a decision to buy a brand. And then they read about something that that company is doing that is contrary to their own beliefs. Well, now they stop buying that brand. Now, what's really interesting about this is the Nielsen uh, company that has been, you know, the the uh, the the watchdog for all sales in all markets. Everybody is very concerned about their Nielsen ratings. It's it's that way in the entertainment industry as well. But they are now publishing reports that show for the first time that products that make claims about sustainability and um, the, and and uh, treating their people a certain way uh, are actually outselling the ones that don't. So that's very interesting, you know, because it isn't necessarily that they're cheaper. It's that they are more transparent about what they're doing. So, yes, this is a really big deal. And we advise our clients to really think about where they're getting their supplies, how they're treating their employees, uh, all these kinds of things, you know, what they're doing to get their product to market. What are the implications? I mean, we're living in in the days where it doesn't matter what politics you're in, uh, it's getting hot outside, right? That's what's happening. So, you know, what is going on? You know, are the, are the companies that you're spending your money on making it hotter outside or are they doing something to mitigate that? Love it. Uh, and uh, uh, Bonnie, you have any, uh, any additional thoughts on authenticity? Well, I think when you're talking about authenticity, you're talking about uh, people that obviously are being real. They're being themselves. So by doing that, uh, you have an opportunity to 
make a mistake and make up mm-hmm. for it. And you have an opportunity to change your mind about a certain situation. And uh, that's called evolving. As, as we've heard to <laughs> President Obama said, yes, he evolved in his time in office and made some decisions that were different than he started off mm-hmm. with. So in a sense, it's always being true to your cause, but you do have an opportunity there to make changes, to make improvements. And some of those changes are made as a result of making mistakes. So making mistakes and evolving, changing your mind and growing, that's all part of the process. And that makes people look more real to the customers. So I think it's important for companies to understand that and to work with that. I love it. I, and you know, listen, I agree with what you've both said. I think I think it's a good thing nowadays that uh, consumers are more um, heightened to uh, uh, whether brands are truly aligned with the, you know with the mission and values and what they say and how authentic they are. I think it keeps people and brands more honest. Uh, and um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm actually a big uh, a big fan of that evolution. Yes, I think that we're going in a much better direction these days. I appreciate the fact that consumers are looking up the background of companies and consumers are realizing that they do indeed have the power of the purse. And that is a huge vote. Well, that's great. Hey, listen, so so uh, Bonnie, Michael, I really appreciate you guys coming on and sharing your amazing entrepreneurial story and the, this, uh, you know, this great brand that you built, the lessons you learned from it and uh, and providing such great value to our listeners. Well, thanks for listening to our deals, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And thank you, Fueling, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.